In the 60s, it was very common to denounce any institution. You remember that? That generation has come of age and has children of their own, some who are grown. But there was a placard that a few people wore during that era, that very volatile area, era, sociologically volatile, and it said, Jesus, yes. Christianity, no. And I think what they meant by that is the person of Jesus Christ we like, we're drawn to, we're attracted to him. He was a radical nonconformist like the rest of us. We like that. But we don't like what has become of Christianity after Jesus. It's become organized. And for some reason, there are certain individuals who do not like any type of organization. It's obvious as you look at their lives. They're very disorganized. Hence, anything that is organized at all, they have an affront to it. They like to just go by the seat of their pants and just whatever happens, happens. And to some degree, that's good. But even Jesus, though he was an itinerant for about a year or so, did feel it necessary to take and train his disciples and give them a few parameters and narrow down their instructions so that they would become more effective. And when he left and ascended, and Jesus said that they would be filled with his spirit. At first, the early church was one big happy organism, if you will. Just an exciting growth happened in Jerusalem. Thousands of people swarmed into that large outer court, the court of the Gentiles, filled with new life, believing Jesus had risen from the dead. They had no bylaws. They had no buildings. They had no formal pastors. But eventually, through the Holy Spirit, it became organized when a dispute arose in the book of Acts. And they wanted the apostles to take care of it. The apostles knew that they had to keep a system, a set of priorities, and pray and study the Bible and raise up other leaders to take care of that. And so the organization got tweaked a little bit. And later on, in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council... Council of Elders met together to deliberate and discuss church policy and church doctrine that they would then take to other parts of the empire. And then later on, Paul the Apostle said that you are to ordain elders in every city. And as church history unfolded, it became organized. Every organism needs to be organized. An organism that is not organized is called a blob. Now, you might prefer to live just as a blob. But if you can organize the blob, it can be a more effective organism. The key is to not impose man's organization, but God's organization. And even when you organize things and you have stops and you have balances and checks, to leave enough flexibility for the Holy Spirit to operate. It is a delicate balance, and the church has succeeded and failed throughout history. Now, in this chapter, Jesus is training his disciples. In fact, more and more he turns away from the crowds and turns more toward training 
these disciples and eventually his 12 apostles to take the banner of evangelism and go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, I think we read a few verses of chapter 6 last week, but let's just kind of read it again, read it all, because we stopped short after a few verses. Now it happened, on the second Sabbath after the first, he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is not against the Sabbath. He is not against Judaism. In fact, he said, I did not come to destroy the law. I have come to fulfill the law. He was not a lawbreaker. But he was a man-made lawbreaker, not the laws of the land, but the imposed laws of the religionists and the traditionalists. And there's a growing tension over the Sabbath. There are four clashes in a row, beginning in chapter 5 all the way through chapter 6, that Jesus has with these traditionalists. And it all has to do with eating, not eating, drinking, not drinking, and the Sabbath. The Sabbath law prohibited normal work on the seventh day. Shabbat is the Hebrew word, means to cease or to rest. God created the earth in six days. The seventh day he rested. That became a pattern for the Jewish nation and part of the covenant God made with Israel and the nation of Israel alone, by the way, included the Sabbath rest. On the Sabbath, you could not walk longer than a Sabbath day's journey, about three-quarters of a mile, 3,100 feet. If, according to the rabbis, you walked 3,101 feet, you broke the law. But they added so many rules and regulations, they just kind of did whatever they wanted. For instance, if you placed food 3,100 feet away from your home and you went out to eat it, technically you have expanded the borders of your dwelling. So you could go for another 3,000 feet. And they would even take cables and mark from their home outward and connect buildings. By the way, it is done today. There is a huge cable that goes around the entire city of Jerusalem. Some of you remember the article, maybe last year, year and a half ago, I read about how in a severe snowstorm that cable was broken, which really got the Orthodox Jews uptight. Because now, if that cable is broken and these places aren't connected, we can't go further than 3,100 feet. It became just insane. Now, some of the Jews believed at the time of Jesus that the nation must keep the Sabbath, and if they kept it corporately, the Messiah would come. So they were keeping the Sabbath. They wanted to make sure everybody else was keeping it as well. Now Jesus is out on the Sabbath day. 
and, and he's just out in the grain fields, probably having a great time with his disciples. It's a, it's a training time. Maybe Jesus is giving parables of instruction to them. Well, the Pharisees happen to be there. And as I've mentioned many times, it's odd that way out in the middle of the cornfields, the grain fields, the Pharisees happen to pop up at a crucial time. And the crucial time is when the disciples would reach with their hand and grab the ripened heads of grain, pick it and rub it, blow away the chaff, and take the grain, put it in their mouth, and it becomes sort of a gummy substance that's very tasty. And uh, they're just walking and eating, which, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, was perfectly lawful. The only thing you could not do is take a sickle to standing grain or carry something in that you could put the wheat or the grain in. You couldn't bring a wheelbarrow in and load up and split because you'd be stealing. But if you're just out walking around from town to town, from place to place, no problem. On the Sabbath, you could do no work. You could do no reaping, no threshing, no winnowing because that's called preparing food. According to the Pharisees, the disciples have done it all. They grabbed it with their hands, rubbed it in their hands, blew away the chaff. All of that was threshing, reaping, and winnowing. They have prepared a meal according to the technicalities of the Jews. And so they come and say, Oh, we caught you in a technicality. We just saw what you did. You didn't keep the Sabbath. How come you're not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry and those who were with him. I just got to say this. Um, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath, by the way. As some people think, well, now that we're believers in the New Testament, we also have a Sabbath. That is Sunday. No, we do not. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week. And Christians in the book of Acts, chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians, talked about meeting on the first day of the week, principally because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Though some of the early church did meet on Saturday, and a division arose. In the book of Romans, chapter 14, the apostle addresses the whole idea of when you should meet. What day of the week? Basically, Paul said this, one man esteems one day over all the other days in the week. One man esteems all days in the week alike. And here's his final deliberation. Let each one be persuaded in his own mind. I like that. Now, you've all met people who said, Sunday and Sunday alone is the true day of worship. You've also met people who say, oh no, Saturday and Saturday alone is the true day of worship. Which is the true day of worship? Well, it depends who you are. If you think Saturday is the true day of worship, you ought to worship on Saturday. If you think Sunday is the true day of worship, you ought to worship on Sunday. Now, I think every single day is exactly the same. It's a 24-hour period, and every day belongs to God. I don't worship God on Sunday and go, Hey, today's Monday. I'm off. I don't have to worship God. That's just Sunday. That's God's day. That's the Lord's day. Every day is the Lord's day. Tuesday at 2 in the morning is the Lord's day, and I'm usually not up at 2 in the morning, but if I am... Good time to praise God. And I'm persuaded in my own mind that it doesn't matter. You might go, oh, no, I, I'm persuaded in my own mind that 
Sunday. Good. Be persuaded in your own mind. I'm not persuaded. And Paul said, let each be persuaded in his own mind. So whatever you're into. And I think that's a beautiful way in grace to solve the problem. But there's a difference between Saturday and Sunday. Saturday is the seventh day. Sunday is the first day. Saturday means you rest after you work. That corresponds to the law. Because under the law you had to work, 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 and then rest before God. But you had to really keep the law. In the New Testament, rest comes before work. Even as Sunday comes before the work week. And it's very analogous to our standing in Christ. We're accepted in Christ and we can rest in Christ, who is our Sabbath, and we're saved not by our works but by an act of grace. Now we work consequent to our relationship with God, but we're not justified by our work. So we rest before we work, and our works prove that we have a relationship with Christ. So I think it, it's typical, but again, it's not something hard and fast. Okay, uh, they nailed the disciples uh, with their words, and uh, Jesus answered, and I love the way he did it. He simply tells this group of revered scholars who spent all their time reading the Bible, he said, haven't you even read this? You know, that was sort of like a backhanded remark to them. Hey, you great scholars who read the Bible all day long, haven't you even read this, what happened to David? Now he's referring to an incident in the book of 1 Samuel when David is fleeing Saul and he comes to the place called Nob and the priest's name is Ahimelech. And Ahimelech sees David coming and he gets scared. How come David's out here? Who sent him? What's going on? Is, you know, all sorts of things are going through his mind. David, how come you're out here? I never heard you were coming. Well, Saul sent me on a secret journey. He told me not to tell anyone. But we've been out a couple days and we're hungry. Do you have any food? And uh, the priest said, no, we don't have any food. The only food we have is the showbread, those 12 loaves of consecrated holy bread that were changed only once a week on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, so that a new series of loaves could be put in their place, each representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The loaves left over from the previous week were eaten by the priests. Nobody could eat them but the priests. This time the priest says, this is holy bread, but... I can give them to you if your men have kept themselves from their wives and they're ceremonially cleansed. David said, done. We haven't been around our wives for three days and we're all ceremonially A-OK. -okay. And so they ate the bread. Now that wasn't the rule, but it was the exception. What made the exception? Human need made the exception. Their need for hunger superseded this little ritual. And Jesus uses this as an example. My disciples are hungry. I'm out here and we're eating. God gave it to us. It's in Deuteronomy 23. Haven't you read your Bible? How even the great King David on the, on, uh, uh, the Sabbath, because that was, uh, the Scripture says it was the day when the bread was being changed. And David, in that sense, broke it. How he went into the house of God and took and ate the showbread and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. I think I told you uh, some time back what happened to me when I was a little boy going to St. Mary's Elementary School. Some of you remember. 
It plagued me and my conscience for years until I read this passage. In St. Mentry's Elementary School, in the month of May, and if you haven't guessed by now, it was a strict Catholic school, and all my teachers were nuns. And during the month of May, we had Mass every morning in the auditorium. And there was one particular day when I was the altar boy. And I forgot my lunch. And around noontime, I was starving. And I was in the auditorium. I didn't have any money to buy lunch. I didn't bring my sack lunch. But I remembered that there was a bag of hosts in the front of the auditorium. Only the priest and the altar boys knew where they were kept. Now, they hadn't been consecrated yet according to the Roman ritual. They were there as a surplus. But I was so hungry. And I took about two handfuls of them, <laughs> stuffed them in my shirt, and I went out and had lunch. <laughs> and afterwards, I, I was like sweating bullets. You know, looking for lightning. <laughs> and even after that, for years, I, I thought back to that incident as, man, this is like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or something. Man, I, I've sinned against God. I can't be forgiven for that. I'm going to have to confess this great sin to someone. And when I gave my life to Jesus Christ in 1973, I was reading this passage of Scripture how the disciples were in the grain field, and then Jesus spoke of David, and I read about David eating that holy bread that only the priests could eat. And, you know, Jesus said, basically, it was all right. And I thought, all right, it's, it's all right. Thank you, Lord. I just felt so free and liberated. <laughs> My personal testimony of freedom from guilt. Now, nine times in the Scripture, Jesus asks these scholars, have you not read? And we ought to pay attention to every time he does. Have you not read? I think there's an interesting implication in that. You can be a Bible nerd. So well read, you can memorize scriptures and go through all the navigator stuff. And you can memorize chapters. And even after reading so much, if you don't read with an open heart and an open mind, your heart can become hardened to the truth. The Bible is the most dangerous book in the world to read because it demands action and decision when you read it, when you expose yourself to it. Here are these people. That was their job. They read it. They studied it. They prayed over it. They didn't read it with an open heart or an open mind. They didn't have the attitude that young Samuel had when he was a kid. Speak, Lord. Your servant is hearing. The idea is hearing with the desire to keep and to obey. And so Jesus got them on that. Now it happened on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and he taught. And a man was there whose right hand was in Greek, xeros, dried up, withered. Speaks of the juices being dried out of something. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. According to the law, 
you could not heal on the Sabbath. Now, I found that always a goofy law. Because as I read Jewish history, I never read of anybody coming along who could heal on the Sabbath. It wasn't a biblical law. It was a law of the Pharisees that unless a person had a condition, a life or death kind of a medical condition, usually a disease of the eye or of the throat, he couldn't be treated. You had to wait till after the Sabbath for a doctor to come in. Sometimes even broken limbs were left until after the Sabbath. Now this man did not have an emergency medical condition. And I've often wondered if these Pharisees didn't plant this guy in there. You know, they knew Jesus was compassionate. They knew Jesus loved to heal people. So let's just plant a sick person. Let's just see if Jesus is going to be motivated enough to heal somebody. Now, you would think that the response when you see a physical miraculous healing would be joy, right? It's not. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely. Verse 8, But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Jesus said to them, I will ask of you, that is them, the crowd, I will ask of you, this judgmental group, one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now their hearts had become so hardened, they were not even open to even the miraculous, stared them right in the face. A miraculous healing had been done. And instead of going, man, you know, I've never seen anything like this. This is so amazing. There's something to this man. His teaching and his works speak of that. They had become so hardened that even in the face of the miraculous, all they can think about is destroying the source of the miraculous. They're becoming dangerously close now to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus already said. Um, why didn't Jesus do this privately? He could have. I mean, again, this is not a life or death situation. Why didn't he wait a few hours? The Sabbath is almost over. Just wait a while, take him aside privately and do it. No. Because it's now an object lesson. Whether he's a plant or he's there on his own, he's moved with the compassion for human need. Now, it would be embarrassing to say to a guy who has a physical handicap, come over here, stand up, and every eye is on him. And they're wondering, what's he going to do? And then to say, okay, He's got a withered hand. Stretch out that withered hand. I'm sure that people were saying, that is cruel. Look at that. He's isolating this person, making him stand up, and then commanding him to do something that's impossible. He's making fun of him is what he's doing. I've never seen him do anything like this. Jesus commanded the man to do the very thing that he could not do, but he did it. And there's a very important principle. God's commandments are His enablements. Away with this philosophy that says, it's too hard, it's impossible, it'll never work. If God commanded it, do it. If He said, be of good courage, be of good courage. When He said, have faith in God, have faith in God. 
Oh, but I can't. He gives you the ability to do what he commands. Otherwise, he would never give you that command. It would only frustrate the situation. Stretch out your hand. And he did. And it was restored as whole as the other, but they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now it came to pass in those days, he went out to a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. I've always been fascinated with the prayer life of Jesus, being the Son of God, displaying the attributes of God. He was also fully man, and he depends upon his Father. And he forms for us an example. The obvious. If the Son of God needed to depend upon his Father while on the earth, how should we think, or how could we think, that we need to depend on him any less. For all Christians, you need to depend upon the Father. You need to discuss your week with your Father. Lay out your schedule for the coming week with your Father. Talk about the problems you're having with your husband or wife and kids with your Father. What school should your kids go to? Where should you move? How are you going to pay the bills? You've got a Father in heaven. If Jesus depended on him, would it not be only arrogance to think, I don't need to depend on him. I'll only depend on him if I can't figure it out. Once I can't figure it out and I'm really in a jam, you know, when in doubt, pray. But Jesus was consistently depending on his Father. And I think also this is a model for any ministry at all. Speaking about the organism versus the organization, it is folly to try and organize without prayer. Because what you're basically saying is, gee, thank you, Holy Spirit, for all your help for the first 2,000 years. Now we've got to figure it out. We've got manuals and books, and we've got organizations. We don't need you any longer. We'll take it from here. Just give us the ball. We'll go for it. I don't read that in the book of Acts. What I read in the book of Acts is as they fasted and waited on the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I have called them. That as they fasted and prayed and asked God for his guidance, God gave them the direction that they were looking for. And so Jesus took his own personal Sabbath, his own time of rest, to get in tune with the Father, to get direction. And it was a very, very crucial time because we notice in the next few verses that he chooses apostles from amongst the ranks of his disciples. When it was day, he called his disciples to him. From them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. There were many disciples. There were 12 apostles. Many people followed. There was one occasion where he had 72 and he sent them out in pairs and sent them all around the area of Galilee to share the gospel. He also had crowds of people that were following after him. And a disciple simply means a follower or more basically a learner. Somebody who watches, somebody who listens so that they might learn themselves. But Jesus took 12 of them and sort of graduated them from learner to missionary to one who is called out as an ambassador. That's what apostle means. In other words, I don't want you to just learn. Now you have to take the task of doing. And so he takes them, calls them to become apostles. If you were to take all of the Gospels and, and make a, a, um, a harmony of the Gospels, it would seem, as you put them all together, that Jesus calls his disciples more than once to follow him. 
The first time he calls them is in the Gospel of John, and it seems that Jesus calls his disciples, his apostles actually, to believe in him. After following John, John points to Jesus. Jesus says, okay, follow me now. The emphasis is off John, even as he said, he calls them to salvation. The second time, I think it's Luke. No, it's not. It's uh, Mark that records it. And it's a calling not to salvation, but it's a calling to service, to witness for him. But now Jesus calls them to be apostles. And I think there is a pattern. You are called into ever-expanding areas of responsibility and service. At first, you become a learner. You just soak in the word. You just sit in the dugout. You get all that you can. There comes a time when your Christian life is not complete until you discover the gifts God has given you and in turn use them. I think a lot of people find the Christian life just sort of blasé because they're only taking in and they're not giving out. It's awfully boring to just sit and try to receive and not take what you've received and share it with others. In Israel, they always use this as a parable. They talk about the two bodies of water that are inland in Israel. There's the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee, of course, is that source of water. The Jordan River flows into it, flows out from it, and water from the north is given to all of the nation of Israel. It's green around the Sea of Galilee. It's lush. It's gorgeous. Around the Dead Sea, it's dead. The water itself is dead, 25% salt. Nothing grows really around it. And so they asked the question, what's the difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea? The answer is obvious. The Sea of Galilee has an inlet and an outlet. The Dead Sea has an inlet and no outlet. Therefore, it is dead. And so it is with a person, somebody who just takes and takes and takes and never says, now I'm going to give out, becomes like a Dead Sea. All of those minerals and deposits just sort of silt, lie at the bottom, dormant. And even with all of the richness of the Dead Sea, it doesn't give out life. Because it's only taking and it's never giving out. These learners must now become ambassadors. And so he takes 12 of them. And I love studying about the 12 disciples. They're an interesting bunch. Two sets of brothers. Several of them are fishermen. One is a tax collector. The fishermen were Jewish. The tax collector is a turncoat. We read about Matthew last week. His name was Levi. He was probably from the tribe of Levi. Should have been a priest. Became a tax collector instead. A notorious traitor to the Jewish people. There was a class of people who hated tax collectors. They were called zelotes or zealots. They were a political nationalistic group who hated Romans, hated the rule of Rome, and especially hated tax collectors because they worked for Rome. Generally, you put a zealot together and a tax collector together, it would be like having an Israeli freedom fighter and a member of the PLO in the same room. They wouldn't last very long under normal conditions. And Jesus takes people from all of this diverse background and he calls them as his disciples. Uh, first on the list, Simon, whom he also named Peter. Peter was impetuous. He's a leader kind of a guy, but he learns the hard way. He learns by running into a brick wall and finding that he can't go any further, and he takes a different direction. Many of us can relate to Peter. 
Peter often decided which foot he should put in his mouth. He said the wrong things at the inappropriate times. He made promises that he was unable to keep. Lord, though all forsake you, you can count on me. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Uh, Peter, that's my line. I'm Jesus. No, but you can count on me, Lord. But he was the one who denied the Lord eventually. Then his brother is mentioned next, the brother of uh, Peter. Andrew, his name means uh, manliness. <laughs> he was a disciple of John the Baptist, first of all, until Jesus pointed the way, or John the Baptist pointed the way to Jesus. It was Andrew who was reluctant to trust in Jesus Christ, as we'll read about a little bit later on. Um, at the feeding of the 5,000, he was reluctant to trust Jesus. James and John, they were brothers, called the sons of Zebedee. Uh, they were the two characters that got their mom to come to Jesus and try to finagle a special place in the kingdom, one at the right hand, one at the left hand. Jesus called these two brothers sons not of Zebedee but sons of thunder because they wanted to waste and destroy the Samaritans who didn't believe in Jesus. So he nicknamed them, rather humorously, sons of thunder because they wanted to bring thunder, lightning, fire from heaven down on the Samaritans. So instead of, here comes the sons of Zebedee, the disciples said, here comes the sons of thunder because Jesus nicknamed them that. But it was also James and John who became something. John became the disciple that Jesus loved. John laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. James became the first martyr of the early church. They changed. Next on the list is Philip. Tradition says that Philip was the one who, when Jesus called him, said, Permit me first to go bury my father. We don't know if that's true. It's simply a tradition. But we do know that this guy had a calculator for a brain. When they were on that area around the Sea of Galilee, and the crowds came, and Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Before that, it was Philip who said, uh, uh, where are we going to buy bread that they may eat? And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And he says, 200 denarii. That's eight months' wages for a working person. Now, I don't know how he came up with 200 denarii. Perhaps he just pulled it out of his brain, or he was actually looking. Okay, there's 10 here, 20 here, 50, 50,000. Okay, and he's calculating in his mind what it would take. Even 200 denarii, I can't count them all, but that wouldn't be enough. He's actually trying to compute how much it would take to feed them. And Jesus, you know, thinking, this, he just doesn't get it, you know. The, the best answer is, I don't know where we're going to get it. You're God, and I trust you. You can multiply things. It was the second time this happened. He had already seen Jesus multiply the loaves and the fishes once before. Matthew was, uh, or then Bartholomew, uh, also called Nathaniel in another portion of Scripture. Remember, it was Nathaniel or Bartholomew that was really the first doubter. It wasn't Thomas. It was this guy. Because he was in his, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In John chapter 1. Matthew, we read about him last time. Thomas, he's called the doubter, but I see Thomas, first of all, as very loyal and very honest. He was the one who said, when Jesus said, we're going down to Judea, and the other disciples warned him not to go. Thomas said, let's go with him, that we can die with him. That might sound like a negative comment, but at least it was loyal. And it was also Thomas who didn't just nod his head like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. But he questioned what Jesus said at the Last Supper. 
Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, time out. We have no idea where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. (laughs) And I like guys like that. Rather than just saying, oh, yes, oh, yes, right on, amen. And then for Jesus to say, what did I just say? I don't know. (laughs) Thomas was upfront about it. Look, these other guys are nodding their heads, but I don't even know what you're talking about. And then Jesus explained, I am the way, the truth of life. I'm the way to my Father's house. And he opened the door for further explanation, of which we are grateful for. James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon called the zealot. Those are the guys that hate tax collectors. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Now there's a warning. Here you've got 12 guys Jesus picked. Judas heard the same sermons the rest of them heard. uh, Judas saw the same miracles the rest of them saw. And yet he was a thief. He was unchanged. There are many people who, like Judas, go to church, are exposed to the same truth, but are unaffected by it. And it was Billy Sunday who came up with that saying, that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting inside of a garage makes you a car. Judas heard the best teaching ever. He saw and heard the Messiah one-on-one. But he himself was the traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with the crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and he healed them. Now what we're about to read sounds very much like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7. Scholars are divided. Some people think it's exactly the same sermon because it sounds very much like it. Bits and pieces are the same. Others are a little bit different. Others see this as an entirely different sermon altogether because Matthew says Jesus was on a mountain. Luke says Jesus was on a level plain. It could be that Jesus preached two separate sermons. He often preached the same sermon in different locations. He didn't just have one for that occasion and forgot that teaching. He did repeat himself on many occasions. But probably Luke has trimmed down what was heard that day for his own purposes, and it's the same message. You say, well, why is there the discrepancy? Why does one say a mountain and one say a plain? The Greek language for a level place means a plateau coming from a mountain region. So it could be the same thing. On a mount that was uh, maybe near a level place or it was a plateau that came out like a mountain, it could be the same place that Matthew spoke about. We don't know. You can take your pick. But uh, we do notice that he had multitudes around him. You know, wherever Jesus went, he had crowds. But the crowds were very diverse in the reason they were following him. Some were there because they were genuinely committed to Jesus. Others were there because Jesus was a healing line or a bread line or had some benefit to give them. Others were looking for nationalistic purposes, political purposes. In John chapter 6, they tried to force him and make him a king. They had messianic expectations and they wanted Jesus to fulfill them. So not everybody that followed Jesus followed him for the right reason. And even Jesus predicted that uh, 
all of the seed that is sown in a field does not produce fruit. Some doesn't last. Some is immediately snatched by the devil. And even the good fruit produces some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. There's differing degrees of it. And so the multitudes that follow Jesus, it was a mixed multitude. Large crowds of people are not in and of themselves a stamp of the blessing of God. That is, you can't uh, see something growing, be it a church or a movement, and say, it must be of God. Look at all the people. On certain occasions it might be, but not necessarily. If crowds alone were the criterion for the stamp of the mark of God, then we must put our stamp of approval on Islam. That is of God. It must be because it's the fastest growing religion on planet earth to date. Or the cults that are proliferating across our nation and the world. We'd have to say, well, they must be of God because they're growing. Not all of the people were following for the right reasons, like the mixed multitude in the wilderness. And uh, you will see the crowds thin out sooner or later. He lifted his eyes toward his disciples and said, that's important. The Sermon on the Mount, and I personally believe it's the same sermon, it's trimmed down for Luke's own purpose, was spoken not to the multitudes at large, but to those who were following him, his learners, his disciples. Which means that the Sermon on the Mount does not have a broad universal application. It has a very narrow application. The theme is the kingdom of God. It's for kingdom dwellers who have taken Jesus Christ as their king. This is the lifestyle of a changed person who comes to Christ. Every now and then I'll find an unbeliever who says, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. Baloney. A person who professes to live by the Sermon on the Mount and to keep all of the Sermon on the Mount, who's an unbeliever, is someone who has either never read it, doesn't understand it, or is a liar. These are kingdom ethics, and they are absolutely impossible to keep unless you've been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And then it's the ethics of the kingdom. But, you know, we, there's some great sayings in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, people like to think of the Sermon on the Mount, oh, yes, it's, just a, it's a great set of teachings, and that's what I live by. You know, there's beatitudes and platitudes and the birds are singing and Jesus is teaching and I just love the Sermon on the Mount. But people that often say that have never really understood it or probably have never even read it. Now, I think, uh, well, first of all, uh, notice it says blessed. Let's just read it. Let's, let's do that. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. What you have just read sounds very paradoxical. Jesus calls it blessed. This is the blessed man, the happy man. The Greek word is makarion. This was a Greek word that both Plato and Homer used to describe a successful man in business or a very wealthy man. And so it sounds like misery with a different name 
in the context of how these other Greeks had defined it. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you when men hate you. You think, time out. That's not what I thought being a Christian was all about. You call that the blessed life? Now, I think that you need to fill in the blanks from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus gives several beatitudes. Luke doesn't cover them all. The first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is not making a blanket statement that every poor person on earth physically is happy. If that is what he meant, then you'd never see Jesus telling his church to help poor people, which he does. He'd say, leave them alone. They're the most blessed people. Let them go. They're happy. The idea is this is a spiritual message. It's not just physically poor. It's the spiritually poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus. That was the first beatitude. I think the Beatitudes are progressive of the entire Christian life. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, loosely translated, those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt before God on their own. It's a person who's humble, a person who says, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus to cleanse me. That's a person who recognizes there's nothing in the bank spiritually. I'm poor. And then Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. That's in Matthew chapter 5. They shall be comforted. That is, mourn over the fact that they're spiritually poor. This is repentance. Then he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. After you come to Jesus Christ, the change takes place. You begin hungering and thirsting to know God. And then he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And he lists several beatitudes that speak of the changes in the maturing process of the Christian life. Blessed are you who weep now, corresponding with those who mourn, for you shall be um, comforted. Here he says you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their prophets did, or your fathers did to the prophets. Now this is the consequence of the blessed life. When you come to Jesus Christ and you say, I'm bankrupt, and you mourn over your sin, and you start hungering after the things of God, and you become merciful and poor in spirit and meek, what happens is the world looks at you. You're becoming changed. They don't understand you. You're an enigma to them. You offend them. You're usually vocal at that point in the Christian life. You're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And when that happens, people don't like you. They say things like, religion, like politics, is a private matter. You shouldn't discuss it. You say, but, but Jesus said to shout it from the rooftops, to make it public. And because of that, men will scorn you. When they do, think, I'm in good company. They hated Jesus. They hated the prophets. And anyone who speaks the truth, the world will hate. But wouldn't you rather incur the hatred of the world and be the enemy of the world than the enemy of God? Wouldn't you rather have the applause of heaven rather than the applause of earth? 
The applause of this world is so short-lived. People go, oh, you're a wonderful person. Jesus will say in a few verses, beware when all men speak well of you. Now, I don't think that means you ought to go worry tonight if you're a well-liked person and go out of your way to offend people. And you ought to make sure that you're persecuted for the right reason. For the Son of Man's sake, Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 5, he put it for righteousness' sake. And you ought to make sure that if you are being persecuted, it's not for weirdness' sake, but for righteousness' sake. It's not for false doctrine's sake, but it's for righteousness' sake. I'll never forget when I lived at my parents' house and I was a brand new believer and somebody knocked on the door. It was a Jehovah Witness. I saw them coming, and so I said a quick prayer. I opened the door, and the first thing out of their mouth, of course, is, why do you have a flag here outside, an American flag? That's an abomination to God. And they were trying to pick different things apart. And I had my Bible open, and I was sharing with them. And eventually the conversation rose a little bit in decibel level, became a little more intense. And they said like this, Oh, Jesus said this would happen, that we'd be persecuted for righteousness' sake. One said to the other, I said, Stop right there. You are not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're not even being persecuted. You're being called on the carpet for false doctrine's sake. You are preaching another gospel. And you ought to be called on the carpet, and you can't defend yourself at this point, and you're using this as a scapegoat. It's the, only, it's the oldest trick in the book. I remember down at the university one night out, there was a guy, there was a whole group of people letting, being led out of Pope Joy Hall, and this guy was standing on an elevated bench, and he was shouting in angry tones, you horrible, rotten, on and on and on, all these people. Now, I was watching the crowds. This guy was being very vocal and very antagonistic toward the audience waving his Bible. And I was watching how many people were convicted <laughs> and repentant and endeared to this response. Not a one. They all just left. There wasn't the fragrance of Christ that Paul spoke about. And people were mocking him, and I don't think they should have, but I don't think they were mocking that person for righteousness' sake. There's better ways to approach people. Jesus says, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. He was being as wise as a dove, which is not too wise if you understand how a dove thinks. And he was being as gentle as a serpent, which is not too gentle. It's very biting. And it pushed a lot of people away. So make sure that you're persecuted for the right reasons. But woe unto you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. He's condemning the godless rich who were oppressing the people. It was very common at the time, and it is still unfortunately common today. Some of the most wicked men on the earth are the godless rich who hide behind their wealth as a sense of security and use that as sort of a uh, platform of pride. But I say to you who hear, 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. From him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, do also to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even if, even if uh, excuse me, for even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the highest. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Now, I think this forms the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount, the very heart of the gospel, and probably the most difficult to perform. When is the last time you were able to do this? When people mocked you, hated you, maybe slapped you for you to love back. It's very difficult to do, but... This would set the child of God apart from everybody else. It's easy to love the lovely. It's hard to love the unlovely, especially those who hate you. But God loves differently. The model of God's love is Romans chapter 5, where it says, I'll come up with it in a minute. For, uh, not for a righteous man... For scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Peradventure for a good man, someone might die. But God demonstrated his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Or Christ died for us, the ungodly. While we didn't deserve it. Now, it's easy to love those who love you. Here's an example. Picture a handsome lifeguard. He's out on the beach. He sees a gorgeous young blonde having difficulty out there in the water. At that moment, would he think, what a tremendous sacrifice for me to jump out there and save that person. He would probably do it very willingly. What if, an unlove- what if somebody just walked by and spat at him? Maybe he was not good to look upon. Maybe he had lost all of his teeth, and uh, physically he was repulsive, and he was out there drowning. Now that lifeguard is responsible for that life. To save that life as much as that beautiful girl. But how would he feel at the moment when he sees the guy struggling? He might say, any other blondes out there drowning? (laughs) One is an emotion, the other is a choice that is opposed to an emotion. There are some people that are just great. They're lovely people. It's easy to love them. They're so lovable. There are other people who aren't so lovely, and we're called to love them. That is a choice to perform an action that is contrary to our emotions. It's the Greek word agapao, to love with divine love. It is a choice. It's much more than a feeling. In fact, sometimes it's contrary to feeling. Loving and liking are not the same thing. Did you know that? 
I don't think God calls us to like everybody we love. I think it's an impossible thing. Otherwise, how could he say, love your enemies? You wouldn't have any, any enemies if you liked everybody. There are certain people that are just against our personality. But the Bible says we're not to show partiality. God's love pervades and extends beyond just those who are lovely. And here it is, the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount, the unlovely, the enemies. And here is verse 35. Love your enemies, do good and land, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. In other words, use God as your example. He loved you, love others. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, men will put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you used, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable, and we'll go through the rest, including this, next time. Father, we are grateful that the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, spoke so often to his disciples about the kingdom of God and the ethics of the kingdom of God. And he drew a picture of the person who is truly fulfilled, happy, blessed, of 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 happy.